Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on the right to be believed. The background to this event should be obvious, at least since uh, the Savile uh, affair. We seem to be very unsure, if not confused as a society, about how we should treat victims of sexual abuse. abuse. Indeed, just recently there have been a series of embarrassing statements and equally embarrassing U-turns uh, from the police and the CPS um, and also um, the media institutions like the BBC um, have come unstuck. Um, and it's tempting to conceive of our confusion as a sort of tension, or at least this is how I, I'm tempted to set it up, uh, between, or tension between, on the one hand, respect for victims, and on the other, respect for the evidence. Respect for someone, for a person, seems to entail believing them when they tell you that something is true. On the other hand, respect for evidence seems to require us to be more cold, calculating and dispassionate, to put somebody at a distance and uh, treat them in a more third-personal, uh, objective uh, way, involves taking up a critical distance. So to navigate our way through this uh, tension, um, assuming we don't reject it uh, as an illusion entirely, is um, our panel, Louise Ellison, to my left, who's Professor of Law at Leeds University, Gloria Arrighi, who's Researcher in Philosophy at the Institut Jean-Nicot and the CNRS in Paris, and Stephen Vullo, who's a barrister specialising in serious sexual offences at 2 Bedford Row. Um, and I'd like to start off uh, just by asking each of our panel to explain a little bit about their interest uh, in this subject. So, Louise, let's start with you. Yes, I have to forgive me. I'm sucking on throat lozenges. <laughs> so, please, that. Um, so, as an academic scholar, um, my interest in this area of research... Um, interest essentially lies in the way police, prosecutors, the courts, including jurors, have responded to allegations of sexual abuse, but also rape allegations more broadly. To look at some of the barriers that confront particularly victims that are identified as vulnerable within the criminal justice system, so, for example, those with mental health difficulties, children those with learning disabilities, for example, um, and to advocate for reform that might ameliorate the treatment um, of victims and also um, ensure that a more accurate fact-finding process is promoted and essentially to remove some undue barriers, as I perceive them, um, to fair access to justice for, in particular, vulnerable victim groups. Gloria. 
well, I'm definitely not an expert on sexual uh, uh, abuse, and uh, but I'm an expert on um, uh, the right to be believed. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a philosopher. I mainly have worked on trust and uh, testimonial knowledge and how, when, or to what extent are we... Um, uh, there is a duty to believe the other people, what are the... Uh, not only the the moral implication, but also the epistemological implications of uh, believing what we are told. So on that dimension, I think I can contribute to the debate, but as a uh, beginner in the the field of uh, sexual abuse, which I'm really not an expert. Thanks. Stephen. Um, Well, I, over the last 20 years, have been involved in lots of cases which are tried in the criminal courts, so quite a practical um, working face uh, knowledge. There has been a a massive sea change, in my experience, over the last 20 years in how uh, cases are prosecuted um, and how they are approached (laughs) by the police. Uh, Most of you probably weren't born in the mid-1990s, but some of you will have been. Uh, there has been an enormous change in the way that the police approach allegations of sexual offences uh, in the mid-90s, uh, even as late as the mid-90s. Uh, the police would often simply work from a position of disbelieving, um, in particularly children when they made accusations of child abuse. It's difficult for us now, even those of us that remember that day and age, to rewind our minds that far back. Um, but the police would often think, well, children just make things up uh, and investigations would start from that basis and and therefore obviously go nowhere. Then we had, uh, as has already been said, uh, Jimmy Savile uh, and the explosion of Operation Newtree um, and arguably, at least, the pendulum has swung fully uh, the other way uh, and the police now, when they investigate uh, sexual offences, work on the assumption Uh, that the allegation is true um, and they communicate that belief to uh, the person making the complaint and one of the interesting dynamics obviously is we still have the presumption of innocence um, in this country, we were talking about it earlier, you have the presumption that somebody who's making an accusation is telling the truth and a presumption uh, that the person they're accusing is innocent and the court process isn't properly uh, designed uh, maybe to deal with that as best as it can all the way through but you have two assumptions and in the end um, we would like to think that evidence rebuts one of those uh, presumptions correctly hopefully. Okay, thanks. Well, we've got a a lot to get through. We're going to start with the more descriptive question that Stephen was just (coughs) touching on, which is what is the state uh, of affairs in the UK uh, criminal justice system now and how it's changed? And we're going to try to leave the normative uh, question of how things perhaps ought to be um, for... um, uh, for a little bit later on. So let's perhaps sort of focus in on that descriptive uh, question. Stephen, you were just uh, commenting on that. Um, Would you like to say a little bit more? The change itself. Well, at at the moment, the uh, stated uh, police policy, as I've said, um, is to believe uh, the victim, actually. There's a big debate in criminal law as to whether it's right to call somebody a victim 
um, before a finding of guilt. Uh, and the proper construction, certainly in a court of law, is to call somebody a complainant. Uh, and the police have moved towards, and the DPP have moved towards calling people victims. And we have a victim's charter, um, which again presupposes guilt. And there is now um, a debate to, to push that back um, and not to communicate the absolute um, belief in what somebody has said when they make a complaint. Over my career, and this is a, a, a difficult topic, it's an emotional topic, and it's very difficult to have um, often mature debate about it because... Um, sexual offences against children, for example, it's, it's difficult to think of anything quite so emotive and unnatural and angering uh, when we think about it. Um, but I often have to deal with somebody who may be falsely accused of doing something like that. Uh, and to be falsely accused of something is obviously very, very difficult for the person being accused as well. Uh, and so there are tensions throughout the system, uh, and we've gone from obviously a situation that was wrong when almost nobody was believed to a position where everybody is believed even in the face sometimes of quite strong evidence to suggest that the allegation they're making is not true and trying to draw a line I don't know what anyone else here thinks but trying to draw a line is very difficult because if you want as with all crimes not just sexual crimes but all crimes if you want a system that prevents innocent people being found guilty you have to draw the line where some guilty people will be found innocent or not guilty uh, the line has to come back uh, uh, otherwise it's not going to be sensitive enough and people that haven't done anything wrong will go to prison so we're already starting to creep into some of these normative questions Sorry. but Louise <laughs> would you agree with at least Stephen's des description of the way the criminal justice system has, has changed to some extent, um, I, I could say something about the way the broad criminal justice system responds to, to victims, and a lot, I could say, and criticise the criminal process for its failure, really, to respond effectively to the needs of those who allege child abuse. But in particular, in relation to the point about the initial presumption of belief, that applies not only in sexual offences, of course, that applies across the board that the police are required to accept what a victim says initially on reporting and report the offence, record the uh, incident that's reported as a crime unless there is contrary evidence, evidence credible evidence to the contrary. So the, the, the point that you make in relation to that presumption, it applies <coughs> across the board in, in all criminal cases, not just in sexual offence cases. Um, to say that the pendulum has swung too far the other way, I would dispute that in as much as we have recent evidence from um, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary that says even though there are very clear rules, Home Office accounting rules that have stated for many years that that is the requirement that police accept what victims say in the first instance, of course in the context that that will be swiftly followed by a thorough investigation and where contrary evidence comes to light, an investigation will be terminated. Um, but the, the research evidence suggests that um, 
things haven't changed as much as perhaps we might think since the time of Jimmy Savile, who first, the you know, first victim came forward in the 1950s, because that um, very thorough research done by Her Majesty's Inspectorate said that, found that across police forces, the police are still um, in contravention of very clear Home Office counting rules, not recording... Um, allegations of abuse and sexual violence where the law, the, sorry, the official guidance requires them to do so and moreover are so-called no-criming cases um, on the base, on, on no sound uh, foundation. So, yes, I agree that the rules are there um, and, as I say, it doesn't just apply in sexual abuse cases. The general rule across the board is the police accept what a victim says initially uh, and then that unless there is, at the time, uh, credible contrary evidence. Um, but the research evidence suggests that that um, is, is not adhered to in very many cases, um, and particularly in, in, in sexual cases. And I say Her Majesty's Inspectorate um, identified that as being a, a serious a, area of grave concern, and that was in 2014, um, which suggests that a, a large number of allegations of serious sexual violence are still not recorded or investigated by the police, which would constitute, I could argue later on, not getting into the normative, but will um, constitute potentially a violation of victims' rights under Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights. So you'd argue that although there's been a change in theory, practice hasn't actually caught up with that? Okay. The research evidence is very patchy. Some police forces have um, performed... Uh, well, in relation to these, and seem to adhere to the, these rules, whereas other police forces um, are seeming to fail to record as, as crime a significant number of sexual um, sexual abuse uh, claims, even now. <coughs> right, there are three times as many prosecutions for sexual offences now than there were ten years ago, so something has happened. Mm. Gloria, you said in the beginning that you are no expert on this particular no, not topic, particular, but let's bring but you in. First of all, uh, the fact I can report from France that the very fact that there has, has been a, a declaration of 17 po women politicians in France two days ago about the fact that sexual harassment in politics, for example, is a problem is so new, given that in France usually these things are so tolerated that I, I have the tendency to share the, the idea that something is changing in general about the, the, the capacity of, uh, uh, well, of denunciation of these things. We were uh, discussing in Paris uh, for the whole last week about Denis Bopin, the former deputy speaker of the parliament who has been, uh, uh, well, has had to resign because of uh, uh, accusations of sexual harassment, not, not exactly sexual abuse. This is an, an interesting distinction. We can come uh, back to this. But uh, I just wanted to well, add a, a dimension. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly the facts about how you are. You were uh, uh, also mentioning some evidence. There are more. Uh, uh, there is a different tendency. There is a different, uh, and also there are more cases that that uh, are. Um, uh, denounced now uh, uh, on sexual violence, but I mean the problem, uh, the, the general uh, philosophical problem of um, uh, sexual abuse is uh, the the very <coughs> what kind of social kind. Uh, are we uh, um, talking about when we talk about sexual abuse, rape, sexual violence, sexual harassment, all these uh, uh, 
let's say, call them social kinds, kinds that have been constructed in the, in the history of uh, the evolution of law and the evolution of social practices, have changed a lot. Their meaning, one, one of the first, uh, let's say, fight, for example, of the feminist movements in the 70s was just to acknowledge these, as, uh, these facts as violence. So it was really, and which kind of violence? In many ca- cases of rape, you were mentioning, for example, child abuse, etc. You don't have signs, clear signs of a physical violence. So you can cons- consider uh, that the psychological violence, violence is even more serious than the physical one, for example, in the case of child abuse. You uh, may uh, consider, as in the case of sexual harassment, that the and, and it was, that was uh, the law also in the United States when sexual harassment was started to be recognized as a crime, that the, the, the real crime is not uh, the violence, because you can consider sexual harassment also very sort of light uh, ways of um, uh, imposing some sort of... Uh, uh, sexual uh, uh, interest on another person, but it was a, a, a crime of sex discrimination in workplaces. So it was very different from uh, the, the real violence. It's not that being uh, called as uh, uh, I don't know, uh, the blonde is a, a violence, but I mean, it's a way of discriminating between men and women in workplaces or something like this. So I think that uh, what really changed, I mean, in, in a more philosophical, historical, philosophical perspective, was first of all in the 80s, uh, uh, starting from the 70s, in the 80s, the, the acknowledgement of these as facts, as something that you can uh, report uh, on. And uh, and then there is the other question, which is uh, even more interesting, how people has, have, have changed, how also the, the police has changed its own in attitude toward uh, uh, interpreting these facts and also giving some sort of credibility to, to them. So the two questions, I think, are relevant, uh, relevant here. Stephen, I wonder if I could just push you a little I, I, bit. Are you going to? I really agree with that. Uh, yeah. I, I really agree with that because police officers, judges, jurors, mm-hmm. um, are all people living in the day that they are living, and therefore they're bound to bring society's values to it. And um, when I when I've done research into in respect of historic uh, sexual offence cases, which are quasi sexual harassment <laughs> sexual offences, so they are not the the, the the gross and worst type of sexual offences, but they are touchings in the workplace. Um, I'm not that old, but I can remember um, people um, people's attitudes being very different. And if you go just one generation back. Uh, from where I am, um, it's quite extraordinary what women will tell you happened to them in the workplace as just an absolute norm. Uh, And now, if any of us saw something like that happen, we'd report it to the police, let alone say that's not an acceptable thing to happen in the workplace. Lots of uh, female barristers that I work with in chambers who uh, uh, are maybe in their... um, early to mid-50s will say that standing next to a senior barrister um, whilst he strokes her leg under her skirt when she was delivering a piece of written work was absolutely normal uh, and accepted 
um, in, in chambers now. I can't imagine that ever happening now, and that's a change. Yeah. Uh, and so that type of change, hope, you know, a police officer is going to view um, sexual harassment in the workplace in, in a different way than maybe his grandfather or father would have done if he was in the police force as well. So I do think society has changed for the good. Um, but we have a criminal justice system where there are potentially, and this is the this is the elephant in the room. There are potentially false claims made um, in sexual offences, and in my experience, of all of the crimes that people report to the police, sexual offences are the one with the significant slice of false claims uh, for various reasons, and that's the elephant in the room. But there you go. Okay, I'll sidestep the elephant in the room. Mm. I suspect we'll, we'll bring in the elephant later on. But just we'll <laughs> on that it. point, I would take the point that yes, of course, there has been there have been changes. You know, child sexual abuse wasn't recognised. Was nobody, you know, to go back in a certain amount in history. People didn't believe that it actually ever, you know, occurred. Um, but I would question how far we've come actually in recognising the realities of sexual abuse. Um, and sexual violence. I think we've just had that played out very vividly and tragically in relation to the child exploitation cases in Rotherham um, and the fact that those cases were reported and not acted upon, so we have very vulnerable young women subject to years of sexual violence and what amounted in the court's view to inhumane and degrading treatment because when they reported, and it did, some reports were made and parents made reports on their behalf, it was a failure to recognise that what was going on was sexual violence. Um, and I think that's a very... You know, that's not years ago. That is, oh, yes. is happening, um, still happening, um, I think, around the country, a failure to, to realise what the reality of sexual violence and, and people coming forward still having their allegations dismissed and cases not being investigated because of this failure to recognise what, what sexual violence looks like. And in you know, the case of John Warboys, for example, the taxi driver in London who was able to... serial rapist who was able to um, perpetrate offences over a six-year period um, and subject over 100 women, it's believed, to serious sexual violence um, those were reported, they weren't acted upon because of this narrow construct in terms of what sexual violence looks like and taxi drivers aren't rapists no, they, they, did, they did investigate war boys they just couldn't catch him um, and they did catch him in the end did they? it wasn't a very effective and that's why the Met had well, to play out compensation to two victims on the basis well, that their human rights had been violated yeah. in a recent case confirmed by the Court of Appeal, so the Met had to pay out compensation that, on the recognition that there were inadequate, serious that's inadequacies, that's serious inadequacies on the basis of that investigation. And part of that was that victims felt that they didn't be believed and the fact that one of those victims wasn't believed led her afterwards to feel intense guilt because of the victim's... Um, were violated as a consequence of that and she suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and it was on that basis that the court uh, granted compensation to her um, against the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. So it was just to bring us up to date, <laughs> although things have changed and there is, um, we're willing to talk about child sexual abuse and we're willing to talk about the allegations as greater recognition. And I think we've got, as a society, we've still got uh, a long way to go in terms of realising uh, 
and recognising what, what sexual violence looks like and we still have kind of a narrow idea mm. and because of that narrow construct that I think a lot of, of, of victims are still um, remaining silent because they don't even recognise themselves, for example, that, that what they are experiencing sexual violence, that was certainly the narrative that came out from the victims of the Rotherham uh, mm. abuse that they didn't realise because, you know... We, anyway. Mm. <laughs> so uh, we, things have shifted... Well, I think we've got an awful long way to go in, yeah. uh, in, I, in terms I, of recognising the realities of sexual violence. I, I agree with that, though. But the, mm. just because we've got a long way to go doesn't mean we haven't oh, come no. a long way. Uh, and I think that we have come a long way. Just on that distinction between theory and practice, is there anything that you could think of from your own experience to see how that practice has actually changed? You mentioned... Um, statistics, but is there anything? How has well, it affected the, your work as a barrister? The, the, there are um, many, many more cases, um, first of all. So, unless sexual assaults have increased over time, <coughs> and therefore more people are reporting them, um, which I don't think is likely, um, it means more people are reporting them. Maybe not everyone, maybe not as many as they should, but certainly many, many more. Um, the way in which they give evidence. Um, is massively different. We have things called special measures now. Uh, so 10 or 15 years ago, if an 8-year-old child said my stepfather sexually abused me, they'd be walked into a courtroom much like this and asked to stand behind a stand much like that, probably on a box, and tell the jury what happened to them, obviously in an extremely intimidating um, atmosphere. Then they'd be asked by somebody wearing a wig and a gown, um, what what happens? They may even be accused of lying, um, and which is obviously very difficult for an eight-year-old in that situation to deal with. Um, now uh, they are video interviewed, um, well away from a court centre, uh, with specially trained police officers who just ask them to say what happened, and uh, that video plays in court as their evidence. <clears throat> There's a new move now, uh, so that any cross-examination is also done. Uh, via a television uh, screen, uh, and that can be pre-recorded as well. And there are lots of uh, measures designed uh, to make it easier uh, and less daunting for complainants to give evidence in criminal cases. But the tension always remains is that there may be somebody at the end of a false accusation and they have to um, be able to ask questions and test the evidence so it can't just simply be accepted. Um, but the way in which they give evidence, for example, is, is, is totally different uh, and much, much better than it used to be. Well, then, I think we've heard a bit from our panel. Let's bring in our audience. Uh, if you've got a question, please raise your hand and we'll get the microphone to come to you. There's a lady at the front uh, and then we'll go to the gentleman at the back and we'll take another question after that. Have members of the, the panel come across situations, and that's particularly to Mr. Bullock, where the victim suddenly decides to withdraw an accusation or withdraw cooperation and if so what have you done um, I've seen this happen in for example domestic abuse mm. Mm. So that, 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 that's a very good question if I may say so because that's a, a, an area of, of substantial change um, in the last 
maybe five or six years, um, what used to happen a lot when I was a junior barrister, we'd turn up to court and there'd be um, a domestic violence case and the uh, wife or partner would have made the accusation and withdrawn it, then made it again and withdrawn it. He would be bailed, he'd beat her again. Um, then she'd make a complaint, she'd sign another statement, then he'd go back and she realised, um, in actual fact, she didn't want to complain, then she would withdraw it. And um, turning up to court to do the trial would really just be a, a lottery of where she was and where he was in terms of their relationship on that day. Um, and that could change the day after very drastically sometimes and then a, a complaint would be made again. Um, the criminal justice system, to be fair to it, recognised... Uh, that, that women were being um, threatened, in essence, uh, to withdraw complaints, whether it was a physical threat or I'll never do it again, I love you, and, uh, and that type of manipulation. And so what happens now in a domestic violence case is the CPS almost always continue to prosecute and uh, they witness summons uh, women to come to court even if they've tried to withdraw whereas before if a, if a woman signed saying I want to withdraw they just drop the case um, there are specially trained officers in domestic violence that will go and speak to complainants in that case where they're trying to withdraw telling them probably what we all instinctively know is that he will hit you again um, he won't change and you need uh, to defend yourself and potentially also your children as well um, and so the criminal justice system used to just drop cases almost immediately if a woman uh, withdrew her complaints now they are very slow to and will even sometimes prosecute people without the assistance of her if they have, for example, her evidence on tape first time round. If I may add something. This is very inter an interesting question that goes with, uh, with my interest, for example, in the evolution uh, and stabilization of a certain concept or a new uh, uh, sort of conceptual resource like uh, sexual violence, sexual abuse in a society. For example, what you are mentioning, the marital rape became for the first time a crime in the United States in 1975. So it is a, and, uh, and so you have this sort of evolution of the different for example, uh, rape as a war crime became uh, uh, recognized as a crime after the Rwanda um, uh, trials, etc. in 1998. So uh, the same concept uh, uh, and the same, uh, well, uh, fact that it is, that uh, uh, exists because people, not, not only because it is a fact, but also because people s become aware of the fact that there is something that has been uh, uh, done that is wrong. I mean, and, uh, um, the awareness of this ha has been a very long process uh, and uh, at a very different also rhythm in uh, in different uh, in different uh, in different uh, um, environments like the. the the intimate one, uh, the the, for example, the war one, the and 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 the workplace. So all these were, in a sense, part of the same uh, phenomenon uh, about which society has had to be become aware and become, become conscious. But the evolution was uh, at different rates, and, 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 and uh, so it's a very it's a very interesting. Also, it's a very interesting for if there are philosophers, young philosophers, it's a very interesting object. Or also subject for a research, I mean, like uh, the, the history, the conceptual history of this uh, 
awareness, social awareness. Louise. I just want to just respond to the point about withdrawal because it is still a significant problem that the criminal justice yeah, system faces and it's understandable that given the perennial problem of delay within the criminal justice process and even cases involving young children can take over a year to come to trial. It's not uncommon. Um, and then complainants are told that the type of therapy that would best help them overcome the serious trauma that they are experiencing as a consequence of their violation needs to be postponed until after the trial, so victims are placed in this invidious position that either they choose to pursue therapeutic intervention that might help them overcome what is a significant um, harm, particularly if they're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, or they can choose to pursue a prosecution. And the fact that we're still in a situation now where victims are put in that that, that position of having to choose um, between treatment that would help them get over their their trauma and access to justice, I think is... I say it's unsatisfactory, but that's an un- understatement. But um, so, prob- withdrawal is, is, is a huge problem facing the criminal justice system, um, and but understandable given that even though, and Stephen's right in terms of identifying significant changes within the trial process, but we've seen, I refer back to the cases of Rotherham and the Oxford cases and the cases of Frances Andrade who tragically took her own life following um, cross-examination in the context of an allegation of historical uh, child abuse, that in terms of the way that victims are subject to cross-examination still leaves a lot to be desired. Um, There have been improvements to some extent, but I would say that the special measures, yes, are there in theory, but research consistently shows that for one reason or another, these special measures, the links, the videotaped evidence, are not made available to complainants (coughs) when they should be. Um, And therefore... the, the, The automatic... Everybody... Everybody that that makes an allegation of sexual abuse is automatically, by statute, um, given special measures, automatic. They they may not choose them all, but they are automatically offered them. There's no-one in this country in the last... uh, 12 years that hasn't had special measures okay. available to them. Applications being made on the day of trial which shouldn't occur and then um, video links that's not that's working right. um, because of faulty poor equipment in the courtroom so that a rape complainant mm. comes to court having been advised that she won't have to confront her assailant in the courtroom because she'll be able to give evidence via a, type, a live link to find that that equipment isn't working on the day um, and therefore she's got to go into a public court of law and testify in front of a courtroom of strangers with, the, with her alleged uh, rapist standing across from him, the doc. So even though that is in theory, the research evidence well, suggests that the provision of special measures is still patchy. I'd be, I'd be interested to see how many, um, because in my overwhelming experience, the courts wouldn't, um, wouldn't make somebody come into court to give evidence um, if a video was broken. Um, they would ask, and if, if the complainant said she wasn't willing to do that or he wasn't willing to do that because obviously both sexes are sexually abused, um, then it wouldn't happen. And just on, just on, on one point, and it's an interesting one, where you referred to uh, the lady that committed suicide after being cross-examined. There, there, there's often um, an automatic connection made between the whole barrister cross-examined her and she committed suicide. Um, last week, from direct experience, I had to cross-examine um, a um, rape complainant I- in a case who was threatening to commit suicide before she came to court to give evidence. 
Uh, she had numerous mental health uh, difficulties um, and serious health problems, and she was a serious suicide risk. Um, my client said he'd been un um, unfairly and improperly accused by her of a very serious crime from which he'd go to prison for double figures. And um, I cannot tell you the lengths that everybody went to in the courtroom, including myself, to ensure that, yes, she was asked questions, but we have something called a ground rules hearing where I ran through the topics that I felt I would need to cover under normal circumstances, and we ticked some off um, because we thought that the complainant would become too upset if I were to raise those topics. And so my client had no benefit of questions on those topics, but the judge explained to the jury at the end that Mr Willow couldn't ask these questions because she was upset. Don't hold that against the defendant, don't hold it against him, don't hold it against the complainant, it's just the way it was. So I, I, I must say, I, I, from all of my experience, totally reject the suggestion that the courts do anything other now. Um, over, over, as far as any system, you can talk about everybody in a system. Um, they are really conscious of uh, the welfare of people to give evidence, especially in sexual cases. Um, and I just, I, the picture that you describe of people turning up and the video doesn't work, so you walk into court and give evidence is just one I, I just don't recognise at I all. I think if you read the, sorry, for just, just for, if you read the press coverage of the type of cross examination that the um, complainants in the Oxford case were subject to, and that mm. was, I think if you, by all concerned, suggested well, that the type of cross-examination that they were conducted where the complainant was called, you know, a wicked liar and repeatedly called a liar to the point that she broke down and was sick. So I, I well, take the point that there, I imagine that there are... Incons I think it's really positive, the, the introduction of ground rule hearing, and I imagine I, I take the point that there are examples of very good practice in operation, mm. but I think to suggest that we have got to a point where there is consistency across the board, and in no. all cases, complainants are treated with due dignity and respect, and ground rules hearings are occurring mm. automatically. No, not, not, the, not I, th all. I think that, yeah. Not, so not, I would say not all, that but the vast, the vast majority. Not, I, don't, not, not I don't know if you can say it in the absence of empirical research. <laughs> we must move on to our next question, otherwise we'll never get around to that elephant. There was a gentleman who was next in the queue uh, in the white shirt at the back uh, with his hand up. Yeah, and then we're going to have to move on in our discussion, but there will be other opportunities to ask questions. My interest is uh, in legal philosophy. Um, in the 19... Uh, legal philosophy, to be precise. In the 1980s, there was a particular move by some feminists to uh, change the burden of proof um, in, in uh, sexual uh, abuse cases. For example, they believed that the, the unreasonable doubt standard the innocent to a proven guilty standard was biased in favour of the man unfairly that in a rape case there's normally two people and if you reasonable doubt the chances are that the man will basically get off against one person against the other. So according to Catherine Kinnan, uh, she wanted to change this sort of sometimes a civil discrimination case where there would be um, sort of a balance of probabilities type of scenario. Other feminists certainly wanted uh, presumption changed completely just to what would effectively believe the woman in, in the sense that that's in the court so it's effectively um, guilty until proven innocent as opposed to innocent until proven guilty so my first question 
exactly on that because there's still a move uh, by feminists in academia, well, uh, for example, to press for change in the burden of proof. And my second question, which is a follow-up on the same point, was uh, that particular um, change in the burden of proof was highly criticised by black feminists on the grounds that it was effectively white women's feminism and racism because they put their black identity in front of their women's identity and said it's not women who are not believed, it's black men who are not believed, and they utilised the effectively the to kill more people the type scenario that um, a black man would never be believed when a white woman accuses them of rape and they report that they being lynched. So that's just sort of two type questions. Gloria, why don't you take this one for us? Uh, this is a very <clears throat> interesting point, and you're absolutely right. It was really Catherine uh, McKinnon uh, who was very influential in uh, in pushing uh, this line and also making the the, the um, uh, raise the aware uh, the awareness. I mean, Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, but she really she is a uh, is a law uh, scholar and uh, and a lawyer, and so. And I think her text that you can find online, Sexual Harassment um, uh, of Working Women, is still a, 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 a sort of a pillar of, of this discuss, discussion. And you're, you're perfectly right. One move was try to change the burden of the proof. And, but of course, uh, uh, there is a problem. Now, to the, uh, in these days, I mean, feminist theory uh, called what you were mentioning uh, uh, the, the black women who are against this, uh, this pushing too much uh, towards this move, uh, uh, intersectionality, uh, which is a concept in a feminist theory that uh, uh, tries to um, uh, weight the different features that make a, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, let's say, determine power relations between, t between two, two people, which is not only uh, sex, but also so uh, class uh, position, ra racial position, ethnic uh, um, uh, background, and so how to deal with all these features, uh, uh, features uh, together is the new chal challenge for. Uh, uh, but of course, uh, uh, you're perfectly right that uh, uh, there were two points that are really philosophically still very important of uh, uh, injustice that were uh, that uh, were stressed by. by by Catherine McKinnon and by feminists, one was really the, a, a credibility injustice, the fact that some people, some groups are systematically uh, less believed than other groups. And uh, uh, if we want to use the language of a, of a British philosopher whose name is Miranda Fricker, who wrote a book about epistemic injustice, one is this credibility injustice, and the other one is interpretive injustice, hermeneutical injustice, as she called them, when a society just doesn't have the sort of semantic resources to call a certain thing that thing. I mean, like, for example, call sexual harassment sexual harassment. So there is something wrong, but we don't know exactly why, and sometimes it, this is the reason why things are not, uh, are not recognized and, uh, and, and uh, not, uh, uh, well, um, um, uh, taken seriously in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, by, by some, by, by, by some other groups. Okay. Uh, I okay. think it's a really interesting point. Great. Well, I want to move our discussion on a little bit towards some of these nor normative issues and also to broaden it 
out uh, to some of the philosophical concepts involved, including the concept of testimony in general. And picking up on this point that, Gloria, you were just speaking about, about credibility and justice, <laughs> epistemic injustice. So I wonder whether you could kick us off here and tell us a little bit about the concept of testimony in general and whether in, and in what sense someone might have a right to be believed. And if so, do you commit an injustice against somebody, potentially, by not believing their testimony? Oh, yeah. So let's start with a question to the audience. So why do you believe what we say here? <laughs> Just raise your hand and see. Assuming, uh, uh, assuming that you do, of course. They, they that you do. Well, okay, just, just pick up one answer. Uh, you speak from academic authority. Yeah. So the, the, so that's, that's the right good, answer. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> if there exists something like academic authority, I mean, that's a kind of answer that is completely plausible. Why are you here and listening to me with this strong uh, Italo-French accent? Actually, I just wanted to... Um, launch uh, the idea of um, 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 acoustic injustice. I think that I have... <laughs> People don't believe what I say because of my awful accent. I mean, it's a, uh, so this is something, a theme for a new, a new philosophical firm. So, so, that's, uh, uh, so you be, even if I have this strong accent and this sort of Italian way of, of moving hands, you still believe me because I have been presented so his authority is uh, like leaks on my uh, authority because he presented me as a, a professor in a researcher in France at the CNRS, etc., etc. So there are many different ways of uh, allocating trust and uh, uh, and um, credibility to other people. One can be just reputation. I mean, why I do I trust uh, this uh, person because uh, there is a sort of record that I can easily check or uh, that. Uh, uh, she has authority on this uh, subject matter or in general of, uh, on other subject matters that can be relevant, etc., etc. Or I can uh, just believe someone because uh, of the cost uh, of this person to say something. Or uh, that is the case that is very relevant, for example, in testimonial uh, cases uh, in, um, in law. I mean, uh, what is the interest of this person to say something? I mean, and, uh, and what are the cost. Now, let's uh, go back to our question, I mean, and our issue tonight. Well, uh, for a, in many cultures, uh, the victim of a rape, uh, either a woman or a man, uh, uh, has a terrible cost, a social cost, in, uh, in uh, um, uh, speaking because uh, uh, she becomes, in many cultures, she becomes uh, uh, guilty guilty of having been raped. And so, for example, uh, she's no more a, uh, a possible uh, target of uh, an arranged marriage. She uh, can be cast out by, uh, from, from her own family or her own group. So the cost is, uh, uh, is immense. And, uh, of course, get, go, going back to your very interesting question, and also there is a cost on intimacy. Uh, you have re, uh, intimate relations with the people very often. I mean, I, I imagine, I mean, I, statistically, for example, uh, very often the, the, the rapist or the violence are in the, in the context of the family or uh, friendship uh, relations. And uh, this means just 
breaking your uh, these relations in, in a way that uh, maybe should be taken in account, into account. You, if you're a child, if you're a, if you're a wife, you have to go back to these people at a certain point. So you have probably have probably. Be, you should be able to have a way of uh, uh, making your outing without breaking these relations for, for, for the rest of your life. I mean, having a sort of way of recuperating. So, the, so uh, all these issues are, uh, are imp important in order to understand how do we allocate credibility. Of course, if the costs are very, uh, are very high, we tend to think that a person uh, has told us something because something is there. I mean, and uh, uh, of course, there are many other ways uh, that uh, we um, uh, that make us um, evaluate and judge uh, the credibility of, of other people uh, in general. Well, uh, for many philosophers, the, the very fact that you said something, the the act of telling something, is a, a minimal default uh, um, the, for, the, for the very fact that you have told something gives you a minimal uh, right of being uh, believed and this is uh, a sort of principle of um, uh, um, conversational coordination if you start to uh, uh, misbelieve in a sort of a systematic way what other people say you don't even start to have a, a, a conversation so you need a, a, the fact that someone tells Tell you something tells you something is a, a way of committing herself uh, to a conversation and uh, taking a responsibility on her own words so you 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 can uh, argue there are philosophers who argue on these lines that there is a sort of a, of a minimal default uh, uh, credibility right uh, but this, of course, can be challenged. But I mean, the stakes can be very different. As I, well, I so, and the reason for us to trust other people can also be uh, very different. I don't have a right to speak about uh, uh, academic uh, things here and now if I'm not an academic. So probably my authority and my reputation as an academic is the most important thing, and not just the very fact that I'm speaking. It's not enough for you. I mean, to to listen to. Me. But uh, in a conversation, for example, uh, a, more, uh, a less asymmetrical conversation, the very fact that you speak is for me a reason to think that you're, do, to, you're saying something that I am uh, supposed to believe. And of course, uh, the stakes become much higher in the cases that uh, uh, are relevant for your uh, work. And in this case, uh, the cost uh, benefits uh, uh, trade-off is very important uh, as, a, as also a way of weighting credibility. Just to link that in with what I was saying in the beginning yeah. with these two different kinds of respect, then it yeah. seems that there is a, a tension because the reason that you have to believe somebody's testimony yeah. isn't independent evidence that you believe that this person is reliable, is telling you the truth. You might only just have met this person. Yeah. So insofar as we've got a reason to believe their testimony, the reason is interpersonal yeah. rather than evidential. It's a kind of what I owe them. Yeah. I owe it to yeah. them as a person yeah. Yeah. rather than owing it to the sure. evidence. Sure. So on sure. the one hand, we've got this respect for other people that yeah. requires us to believe people's testimony. On the other hand, we've got this more impersonal respect for the evidence. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. a sort of tension. As to, so if we can 
or if we do have a standing reason to believe somebody, mm. how do we resolve that tension between, on the one hand, honouring that reason to believe them, and on the other hand, being responsive to the evidence? I, uh, I don't think that uh, uh, trust is something that you give or withdraw in a sort of uh, uh, on and off uh, way. I think that it, I think uh, uh, in a sort of quite minimal way that this right to be believed is a minimal uh, uh, requirement just to start an, in, an, an inquiry or an interpretive process. If you don't even believe the word of the other person, uh, like in, ca in, in some cases, you just, just, just may decide not to consider this person uh, trustworthy in any, in any sense. For example, for, uh, in a case in which there is a record of mentally, uh, a mentally disturbed person, I think that I'm I might imagine that, or for example, in a case in which uh, the person is not considered uh, um, autonomous in the way in which uh, uh, she's uh, uh, reporting on something. So, the, the, uh, so uh, apart from cases in which you can exclude immediately uh, the credibility of the fact that someone is telling something, and this is very difficult and very del delicate, I think there is a respect also for a child, I mean, to believe a, 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 a child on what what uh, uh, she uh, or he says, even uh, if he's or she is not considered competent enough, ex uh, etc. Uh, but of course, I mean, we don't give our trust uh, uh, once, uh, and uh, in it's not an on and off of a process. If we start with a uh, sort of uh, uh, giving a sort of minimal right to uh, to. Uh, uh, be believed. That is a, a way of uh, uh, in, uh, orienting our uh, ori uh, orientating our inquiry in a uh, in a probably more productive way, even through uh, even uh, through evidence. So the. The, I think uh, this is there is a minimal right to uh, to be believed, and uh, but of course I mean I would like to know uh, about your own positions and and uh, and uh, also the audience what they think about if they have a right to be believed uh, and uh, what are the commitments to what we say that we have to uh, consider also. Louise, would you agree there's a right to be believed? In well, general, well, of course, right as a particular mm. is a particular as a there isn't a right as such in, in legal sense. There isn't a right to be believed. There's a right to access to justice. Um, there is a right, or it's a duty uh, on the state, the police, and prosecutors to engage in an efficient and adequate investigation on receipt of a credible credible claim of, of sexual abuse. So, there's a right in that sense, <coughs> but, uh, um, a right to access to justice, but not a right um, that is like, recognised in law. No. So I feel as though yeah. I might be engaging in act of translation here, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you yeah. are interested in a moral right or an epistemic right, yeah. maybe, uh, rather uh, than a legal right. right? Or a moral, uh, you, you can consider this a sort of a, a basic... Um, yeah, like, I mean, uh, Paul Grice, a philosopher, used to call it a sort of maxim, a principle that re regulates our, uh, uh, like a Kantian maxim, in which you, which is a sort of moral right. Of course, there is not a right, uh, I don't know, is there any right to take the word uh, uh, at its face value, at least at the beginning, you were some implying something like this at a certain point, that... Uh, 
of course, there is a presumption of innocence uh, for the person who is accused, but also a presumption of the, the, the truth, the fact that the person who is uh, uh, the victim is not saying bullshit or something. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is there the, something that it is legally or it is this a practice or it is legal? practice as opposed to a right. Oh, it's not yeah, a right. It's a practice. It's a practice. Usually people, okay, okay, it's not. It amounts, in essence, I suppose, to the same thing. If you make a complaint, uh, the police will work on the basis that you're telling the truth until the contrary yeah. is proved. And that will be the same for everybody. So I suppose if everybody who walks into a police station and made a complaint would start off by being believed, it's, if it's not a right, it's close to, isn't it? It's a social practice. I think even if we, when you go to, the, to a doctor and, uh, well, the doctors start to uh, find, try to look for evidence about your complaints about, I'm, I am making it. Yeah. And it, the, the first thing, in, in order just to start uh, her inquiry, is to believe you, to believe you that really you have pain in your arm. I mean, if, it, if there is not this uh, just uh, basic uh, right, it's basic, uh, like, sort of... Uh, uh, truth-oriented attitude toward other people's speech. We could not even start an inquiry. That is yeah. just my minimal point. Well, then let's take uh, some questions. I feel like we need to have some questions from over this side of the room. Uh, there's a lady at the sort of towards the front here. Um, I was just wondering if there's a distinction to be made between believing and portraying to be believed, and whether there's a distinction there between. Let's take one more question and we can t answer a couple uh, in succession, if that's okay. It's a gentleman towards the back. Yep. I think there's something very odd about this phrase, the right to be believed, and not just because of the concept of the right, but because the idea of choosing to believe something is philosophically strange, unless you're actually confronted with evidence that you think justifies it. The problem seems to be that if you say that complainants don't have a right to be believed, many people think you're saying, aha, so you think they should be disbelieved. It's been in the situation in the early times, as Louis Edison and others were saying. Surely the, the sort of obvious solution to this is to say, you act on the assumption that what the complainant is saying is true, or at least is maybe true, you test it. That means that you interrogate anybody she's accused, and you see a case, this is you, and evidence stands up. But you're open to the possibility that the complaint is not telling the truth for whatever reason. Which raises itself the relevance of the remark about the epistemology of testimony we've just been hearing about. Because there is actually some quite interesting research, not in law, in psychology, about how false beliefs can arise, even when, even when they, uh, they are sincere. For example, in the mid-1980s in America, there was a massive panic about satanic abuse. Basically, it had on a book that turned out to be spurious. <coughs> this happened at all. Yet, it was widely believed that children had been ritually uh, abused in a satanic way. It turned out to be baseless. And this sort of thing can actually happen. And this research on why false complaints of sexual abuse, although they may be relatively rare compared to true ones, I think they are rare compared to true ones, but why such false beliefs can arise, sometimes sincerely, and there's actually a variety of reasons why they can. And if the right to be believed implies that those possibilities must be discounted at the outset, then surely justice and the presumption of innocence is severely compromised. Okay, good. Well, 
Gloria, would you like to pick up on this first question? Let's try to answer the questions that we've got. I realise there are lots of <laughs> there are lots, lots and lots of hands so up. So let's be brief. Of, <laughs> uh, so the first question about believing as, as a mean to an end. I mean, so I, I start as a default belief. As, as, uh, I start as a, with a default creedal attitude, like I believe, in order to inquire further. And so this seems to be too, uh, different from uh, believing to court. Uh, I just believe you because you uh, has, have uh, told uh, something. And I think that many, in, of course, uh, uh, there is a classical debate about, uh, about this in philosophy. Uh, people who think that uh, the fact that I say something is never a, a reason to to be believed, but there are further reasons. I mean, evidence is, the, is in the end the reason. Because I said something, I said something about a certain uh, state of the world and uh, uh, a certain fact, and uh, the hearer can verify this fact. And so, basically, it is not, uh, it is not uh, uh, that uh, she believes me because I have said something, but because she has some evidence that I'm not just saying uh, to strange things. This is a Hume position, classical uh, uh, reductionist position on testimony. If the testimony reduces all the believing in testimony is always uh, reducible to uh, believe in a form of evidence. I mean, so classical belief formation. On the other hand, other philosophers, and usually the contrast is between Hume and Thomas Reed, uh, another Scottish philosopher, uh, who said, well, no, we, have, we are entitled to be, be believed because language is a truth preserving, I say it in a sort of quite modern, contemporary way, it's, it's because, because of language, because we have this uh, channel language that is uh, is truth preserving i mean is made to uh, make uh, uh, at the uh, in absence of uh, of contrary evidence made uh, uh, truth uh, circulate so we have have a sort of a, uh, a duty to uh, believe prima facie uh, other people so this is how the debate is um, is uh, is um, uh, structured in the in the philosophy of testimony and it of of course, uh, it's a um uh, it's a, a difficult debate to, to resolve, but it is clear that today in such an information than society as our uh, society is, uh, uh, trusting uh, testimony is a way of acquiring knowledge uh, without checking ourselves. Uh, uh, and so there must be something of uh, 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 that is specific of te testimony, just the, of the testimonial act that make us uh, uh, believe what uh, is said, in absence, of course, of uh, straightforward contrary uh, evidence. Thanks. Well, perhaps we'll let one of you two tackle the second question, edging towards the elephant in the room. So, yeah. well, uh, Can I just say, I, I totally agree with, with what you said. I think it's a very loaded sentence and doesn't actually make much sense when you think about it, it being a right to be believed. Um, because if you have two people speaking to you and uh, they totally disagree with their version of events as to what happens, you, you can only... Um, be, you can only give one of them the right to be believed because you're going to disbelieve the other. Um, I, I think if somebody makes a complaint um, in a criminal case, I think they have the absolute right to have that investigated without assumption or favour, whoever 
whoever they've made the accusation against and whoever they are. Um, and I think if we were to just have that in place, that would be fair for everybody because if I were accused of a crime, I wouldn't ask a, a police officer to assume that I hadn't done it because of who I am and who my accuser is. Um, I would hope as an innocent person the officer would make a full and, uh, uh, and um, unbiased investigation and then uh, trust that the truth w w would out. So I, uh, yeah. I, I agree it, it doesn't fit, um, I was going to say it doesn't fit well, it doesn't fit at all actually with the criminal justice system and, uh, and the assumption or presumption of innocence and, uh, and mm -hmm. justice. If I can, can come back, you use the terms uh, unbiased, exactly. I think uh, it would be probably easier to say the right uh, not to be disbelieved because of bias, <laughs> I mean, which is a less sexy uh, title, but I mean, maybe it's more precise. So what is your right in these cases? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I then you are sure that you, nobody's going to show up if you put up uh, a, a title like this, the right of not being disbelieved because of a bias. Because there is an enormous work, you were mentioning interesting work in psychology, there are an enormous work in, uh, on implicit biases in psychology. I, for example, I work at the European Commission in order to set um, tests for implicit bias for gender, uh, uh, for evaluators, for example, that have to evaluate projects. And uh, even people like me, if I, I'm a woman, I I'm a researcher, etc. If tested for the implicit bias, I result as biased. Uh, I consider men more apt to research. This is a, really a very nice, you can find it. If you, for example, if you Google Harvard implicit bias test, you find, yeah, you find the test online. And it's just a, the fact that there are associations you don't control. Women are more literature and art, and men more science and technology. And this is something, and you can measure this because you're slower when you have an association men with literature, and given that my son is 15 and never re re reads a book, I have an implicit bias thinking that men just don't read. I mean, and so I was slow. So men, literature, I was slow in replying. So, so this, you have a right of being uh, considered uh, 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 having this sort of basic uh, neutral default belief. not being disbelieved. It's yeah, I write not being disbelieved yeah. on the basis of bias. And these biases and also our control and our capacity and our awareness of our own biases evolve uh, in, with practice and also with reinforcement like psychological research and philosophical research, etc. So this is a very interesting point. I want to bring us on because we've got more uh, to discuss and there will be another opportunity to uh, ask questions. Um, and here we're really sort of getting to the uh, nub of the issue. So I'll simply ask uh, whether the panel agree with the following statement. Initially, police should accept a complainant's allegation in the absence of credible evidence to the contrary. So that's in the context of an allegation of sexual abuse. Louise, why don't you start us off with that. Do you agree that initially police should accept a complainant's allegation in the absence of evidence to the contrary? I do. Would you elaborate on why? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as I say, it, it, it is 
already practice that the police do that, not just in sexual abuse cases, but it's accepted practice that the police are to accept what, the, what a complainant says uh, when they report an incident and for it to be recorded a crime. So it's not particularly contentious in as much as this is what's supposed to happen across the board in relation to all areas of, of criminal offending. But I think why it's particularly important in relation to sexual abuse and violence cases um, because... We know the vast, although more cases are being reported, we know that the vast majority of abuse cases, sexual violence cases, still go under unreported. We know from research evidence that particularly those in relation um, victims of child sexual abuse are very often told by their abuser in an, in an attempt to um, ensure that they remain silent, that no one will believe them. We know that one of the key reasons why victims don't come forward is because they fear being disbelieved or even blamed for, mm. for what's happened. Mm. And so in that context, the initial response of the police is crucial, that if victims report an offence and they get any response other than a supportive one initially... Um, again, we know from research evidence that what is likely to happen is at that point the victim withdraws from the criminal process. Uh, that victim then, of course, individually loses any uh, chance for uh, access to justice. But as importantly, that perpetrator, assuming the allegation was true, is then free to go on and perpetrate further abuse, and we've seen that in relation to Jimmy Savile, for example, uh, not <coughs> believed, and then dozens and dozens of, of subsequent victims. Um, so on the basis, it takes enormous courage for victims of sexual abuse to come forward, that there is real fear about being disbelieved, and I think in that context it is enormously important that the police respond sensitively and communicate that there will at least be an initial presumption of belief, that their allegation will be taken seriously, that it will be investigated, but that's in the context of then then there will be a thorough investigation that seeks not only to collect incriminating evidence, but also actively seeks to gather evidence that potentially exonerates uh, the suspect. So in that context... But I have no problem whatsoever with the initial presumption that those that come forward are told that they will be believed in the first instance, but only <laughs> on the basis and subject to the very important caveat that that is then followed by a thorough and, investi um, thorough and effective police investigation which is open to the possibility that the allegation was a false one um, and in, to return to the, the, the questions uh, earlier that's in the context of a standard of proof that is on the prosecution to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt and to return to that point there's nobody to my knowledge seriously arguing for uh, nowadays for a um, diminution in the standard of proof, the balance of probability argument. I don't think anybody's really putting that forward, So, and certainly I wouldn't. Um, many vulnerable suspects within the process and the risk of miscarriages of justice is still, <laughs> is still a very real one. Um, so in the context of a standard of proof where the prosecution has to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt, then an initial presumption of belief, I think, is really important important across the board for the reasons that you talked about in terms of the moral yeah. and kind of way. But from a criminal justice perspective, to do otherwise um, would be to deter 
victims from coming forward in the first place and for those that do uh, come forward, um, if they get a response that is dismissive, that um, seems to, to not register uh, credi their credibility, then, as I say, they're lost to the criminal process yeah. and, and uh, there are significant, serious ramifications that, that follow from that. Just as a quick follow-on from that, though, unfortunately, we know that there are huge credibility barriers still facing certain categories of, 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 of victims. Um, that those with a history of mental illness, and that was mentioned, of course, just because somebody has a history even of yeah. serious psychotic illness doesn't mean, given that <coughs> mental illness is episodic, and well, given the vast, yeah, that's very, very that difficult there can be people to, with a yeah. very severe history yeah. of uh, psychiatric illness who are still quite capable of yeah. providing a very reliable, credible account of victimisation. more likely potentially to become a victim in the first place. Yeah. Oh, the research evidence is, is shocking in terms of far more disproportionately likely to be the victim, not only of, of sexual violence, but <coughs> repeated sexual violence over a lifetime. Um, and, and therefore, absolutely, be careful in terms of um, making any kind of assumptions um, about what a credible victim looks like. Yeah. Stephen, let me bring you in here. Would you agree or disagree? Um, I, I'm a lawyer, obviously, so, I, so I, I, I look at the words, and I would probably, if I was pushed, uh, suggest a slight redrafting. I'd want a definition of what initially meant. Um, I'd probably want to say not to reject rather than accept to, to, to feed in what, what you were saying earlier. But I'd, uh, overall, if I have to agree or disagree with it as drafted, and I'm told I do, um, I don't think there's really an argument uh, against it because um, I read initially to mean just that initially. Um, and accept, um, meaning that we'll accept it initially. And then in the absence of credible, credible evidence to the contrary, again, I, I agree uh, with what's just been said. That means you must look for um, contrary evidence, not turn a blind eye to it and only look for evidence of guilt um, and ignore potential evidence of innocence. So with all, with all of those caveats and clauses in the small print, my answer is yes, I agree. <laughs> Thank you very much. And Gloria, would you agree? Actually, I don't think I'm in a position, credi credible position, to agree or disagree. I think that also the philosophical that. research is more about not uh, in this in this uh, particular uh, domain. For example, how something uh, is uh, philosophical and, and sociological research, how something is becomes affect how some uh, some concept stabilizes become a, a matter of legal uh, um, inquiry and become can 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 change social norms and push for a, a further society in uh, uh, thinking about itself in a new way and in this aspect I think that philosophy has a, a lot to do much more about uh, not about what is said, but what is not said. I mean, what we are not able to detect uh, as uh, a possible abuse or a possible crime uh, that uh, is there, uh, and uh, and uh, it is uh, uh, something that, for example, requires a 
uh, an awareness, uh, um, um, uh, a certain uh, uh, reinforce, uh, as uh, you were mentioning, for example, feminist groups, someone were mentioning the role of feminist group in the 70s in order to make, to create, to raising the awareness about this. Uh, well, it, uh, so it's let's what you said earlier about having a name for something. Yeah, having a name for something and having uh, a, a, a sort of a respectability uh, of uh, this name so that it becomes stronger than uh, other social norms. I, for example, I prefer to, I accept, I, pre, I, I accept the values of uh, uh, my society in which rape is a crime and I reject, for example, the values of my family in which being raped uh, make of myself a, a, a guilty, uh, a, a guilty person. So, and this is, for example, in, in, in countries like in India, etc. This is really a problem. I mean, people just don't make their outing because they're going to lose uh, their position and their reputation, their position in society. So, I think that for philosopher, what is at stake is what is still not uh, is what is not said yet more than what is uh, uh, what is said. Well, let's take some questions. I think we'll have time for three questions, if they're quick. There's a lady in the front, uh, in the middle. Gentleman in the middle, also in the blue T-shirt. Yeah. And uh, a lady at the back, in white. Let's take them quickly, if you can, uh, in succession. Um, I was just wondering um, how often Great Men's asked about their sexual history and caught them that he produces useful evidence. Um, hard, hardly ever there... There was an Act of Parliament uh, passed quite a long time ago in the early 90s uh, which stopped cross-examination of um, complainants in sexual cases in respect of previous sexual history where it was totally irrelevant. For example, um, a working prostitute um, can obviously be raped pre-1990s, what would often happen is she'd say, well, I, I didn't consent to sex, even if it came down to, say, for example, an argument over money, and she would say, well, I was working as a prostitute, but I didn't consent, and then I was raped. Uh, the fact that she was working as a prostitute is totally irrelevant to whether or not there was consent uh, and all of the social assumptions that, that would be incorrect to place on that. So nowadays, for example, it would be totally irrelevant to the issue of whether uh, there was consent and whether there was a rape. It has to be. There was a, <coughs> a case that went to Europe about this piece of legislation that says that um, it actually is not compliant with uh, defendants' human rights to be able to defend themselves with, with relevant evidence. So there's a tension now between them. Uh, but to answer your question shortly, because we're running out of time, almost never unless it is really relevant to an issue other than an issue of consent. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Are there any changes at all that we made to the criminal justice system that would improve um, the victim care that was not undermining, obviously, the innocence people until proven guilty, Ellen? Speed. It's exactly what Louise said. P people hang around. Defendants are on bail for two years. Complainants are told your uh, your um, defendant has been charged. There's going to be a trial in 14 months' time. Mm -hmm. That whether he's guilty, he's innocent, whatever it is, um, whoever's telling the truth is just totally um, out of order. And that, that is a short estimate. There was some um, court sentence in, in London, if you were to be accused of a crime now, would fix your trial for some time towards the end of next year. Mm. Uh, and it, 
like slow justice is just not not good justice. And sort of follow on from the, from that in a way. I mean, I was just interested that Louis, you were saying that there would be no argument for diminution of burden of proof, but it just seems like with all the special motion in the world, and even if the court system was much more fast, like in the sexual problem in cases of nearly always testimony of one person against another, if you've got to have incident proven, until proven guilty, then surely like the vast majority of all, it's just not going to end the conviction, because you're never going to, one person's testimony is never going to provide proof beyond reasonable doubt of guilt, so what, yeah, what's interesting what you well, of course, there are convictions <laughs> in rape cases. I don't know, you might know the latest figures in terms of the conviction rate, but cases that come to court, I think it's around the 40... It's just under... It's about 37%, 37 I think. 37% of yeah, cases. something like that um, last time. I think there is... I wouldn't argue in favour of reducing the standard of proof, but I think there's an awful lot more that we can still do in terms of improving the experience of complainants because I think the quality of evidence one gets from a complainant if a complainant is treated with respect and, and some of the recognised courtroom stresses are, are reduced, then um, that is likely to, to be helpful. Um, but no, I wouldn't argue, as an evidence lawyer, I wouldn't argue for reducing uh, the standard of proof. I think we can do more in terms of educating jurors about the, the um, realities of... of uh, sexual violence. My own research suggests that, that, that people come to um, sexual abuse and rape allegations with a host of misconceptions. The idea that people will report, their instinctive reaction is to report the offence immediately when we know that the vast majority don't report. Um, and when people do report, they often wait for many months um, or years before reporting. Um, an expectation of physical injury um, on the assumption often erroneous that a genuine victim of rape will fight back when we know that the majority of rape victims don't fight back uh, for f freeze or, or out of fear, um, that we expect somebody to appear emotional and visibly upset in the courtroom when, in fact, uh, rape complainants can respond in a variety of ways um, and people can appear calm and composed. And the courts have responded to that by introducing... Um, optional directions for trial judges to give to jurors um, to challenge um, recognised misconceptions about how people respond either during or in the aftermath of sexual violence, but they remain voluntary. And I, th I can't see any principal reason, well, uh... <laughs> really, as to why they should be voluntary. I would make them mandatory. Um, Is it it's not, it's not voluntary or mandatory. Um, most directions are set um, by, a, by a, a, a body, and the direction that you're talking about was given by a Crown Court judge for the first time and adopted, so it's come into being through another route. But um, it, you're right to say that um, it's, not it's not automatic, but it, 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 but it is in every case you ever see. They do give the presumptions direction, which is a really good one. It's exactly everything that you're saying. Um, that, for example, a jury will be told um, just because somebody was raped and they say they sat there drinking a coffee with their rapist for an hour, laughing and joking on CCTV and didn't run away straight away to the police and complain does not mean that she wasn't raped because experience has said that sometimes people are so scared or shocked by what has happened to them, they might sit and engage even in what we would consider to be um, due to incorrect assumptions, a bizarre set of circumstances, but she may well do that, so it's just no, no, no assumptions at all. 
and I think it's a good direction. It, 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 it tells jurors what most jurors don't know, that that's, you know, people react in all different ways. Well, I'm sure we could go on, but I'm afraid we're out of time. So it just remains to thank our panel and our audience for a fantastic discussion.